What is protest? What is place? What is performance? What is freedom? Protest is resistance. It is a way of being or moving or performing that asserts a message. It can be disapproval or objection, but protest can also be an assertion of life. Protest is stillness, it is noise, it is silence, it is violence, it is calm, it is infuriation. It can appear radical and it can appear mundane, but it is always an act of power, whether it be a display of power, a claiming of power, or a cry out for the need of power. Protest is shaped by place, just as place is created through protest. Place can look like many things. Place can be a hotel, a bar, a sidewalk, a street corner, an auditorium. We see the importance of place every day with landmarks letting us know who performed what here and for what reason. Performance is influenced by place as much as place is influenced by performance. And that's why when you talk about one, you have to talk about the other. You can't separate the two. Because when you tell the story of performance, or of a performance, you tell the story of a place too. Performance is a state of being. It is action that is repeated in the narrative of humanity, and through this repetition, reinvented each time. It can be public or private, quiet or loud, freeing or oppressive. It requires place, at least one actor, and an audience for the act itself. These factors don't have to be as clear-cut as they seem, or as the traditional interpretation of the term implies. The location of performance isn't always physical, although it can be, and the actor and the audience can be one and the same. Performance is constantly happening around you, in front of you, and even within you. Performance creates the repertoire of human experience that has been built up since the dawn of humanity, and through it we can understand a kinesthetic history lost to time. Freedom is the ability to live uninhibited in this world and in your own body, in comfort and in full, unabandoned acceptance of oneself. It is an icon, a building that transports us to the birthplace of a nation. It was originally Pennsylvania's State House. Through these doors walked governors, colonial legislators, and everyday citizens. I have visited Pennsylvania's Independence Hall three times on school field trips. Each time I went on the same tour and I heard the same story. The story of a place of independence. It has been dubbed the birthplace of freedom. But freedom for whom? And for what ends? The words independence and freedom, often used interchangeably, point to a similar idea. Though while independence implies the absence of an oppressive force, freedom is a state of being. Independence Hall, previously the Pennsylvania State House, now stands as a historic landmark, a testament to both the United States Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, both of which were written inside. The building itself, 
constructed in 1748 in a Georgian style of architecture adopted from England, is adorned with colonial red brick and a towering white steeple. It sits on the land of the Leni Lenape people, while its famous document lauds that all men are created equal. The same work refers to the indigenous people as merciless Indian savages, 30 lines down. From the outset, the embraced ideal of independence drew clear lines of who was considered human and who was not. In March of 2020, six women of the Iroquois Confederacy visited Philadelphia, stopping at Independence Hall. What began as a journey to retrace ancestral footsteps ended in disappointment at the erasure of history. Michelle Shenandoah, one of the women, commented, We gave our government structure to the United States. Why is this history not known to the public? Within our oral history, we still have these pieces of information, living history. We still keep these stories very much alive. Before the women left the Independence Hall site, they burned sage to cleanse the place. In this courtroom, proceedings were held for those accused of crimes. Their fate left to a jury of their peers. But the jury was not always of their peers, was it? In the mid-1800s, the second floor of the building was leased to the United States District Court and served as a site for a series of fugitive slave hearings. People such as Henry Garnett, Adam Gibson, Stephen Bennett, Euphemia Williams, and Hannah and Henry Dellum were tried in this room. Many of them were ordered to return to slavery. In August of 1844, Frederick Douglass was invited to speak out against slavery at Independence Hall by a group of abolitionists. Before an enthusiastic audience, Douglass denounced slavery, alluding to its clash with the significance of the building in which he stood. He told viewers that he was still enslaved and was at any time liable to be sent back into bondage. Could a group of white Philadelphia abolitionists have understood what he meant? Eight years later, Douglas expanded on the themes of this speech in his well-known address, What to a Slave is the Fourth of July. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. Others followed this example and used the United States documents and the lauded significance of Independence Hall to interrogate the meaning of American freedom. On July 4th, 1965, gay rights activists claimed the space around Independence Hall, and in what was later called the Reminder Day protest, they demanded that their own rights be recognized. Calling upon the pursuit of happiness and the ever-contested all men are created equal, 39 people participated in the first annual protest in 1965, adhering to a strict dress code to appear presentable and employable. 
The protest continued on July 4th for the next four years. The last annual reminder march occurred less than a week after the June 28th Stonewall riots. The march served as a precursor to the Christopher Street Liberation Parade, the beginning of what is now the gay pride movement. Whatever the founding fathers envisioned as the rights and privileges of our citizens, we wanted for ourselves as well as the general citizenry. Seeking for recognition, equality, we are seeking our human dignity. In 2020, this conversation with freedom continues. While the spread of the novel coronavirus forced cancellations of parades and firework displays for the 4th of July, protesters took to the area of Independence Hall to make visible that the work of freedom is far from over. Trans rights activists marched at the Liberty Bell, a group called Red Fists Rising, gathered at 30th Street Station, raising red-painted fists for 8 minutes and 46 seconds to protest the murder of George Floyd. A protest police terror rally was held at the Municipal Services Building. Seven Black Lives Matter protesters were arrested nearby for blocking the Atlantic City Expressway. Evidently, Independence Hall is not the birthplace of freedom. Or at least the story does not end there. This red brick building still stands as a monument to a white settler's notion of freedom. But the lived repertoire of the place reflects a larger conversation about the erasure and reclaiming of freedom within Black, Indigenous, and queer communities, as well as other marginalized groups. While the Declaration of Independence and later the Constitution made it abundantly clear who was and who was not welcome within their definition of human, this place has witnessed an active performance of the proof of humanity. Protesters, performers, and other people have taken to this place and turned its own words back against itself to more truthfully define independence. If you are from Harlem, grew up in Harlem, or have visited Harlem, you know about the Apollo Theater. As a Harlemite myself, I went to school blocks away from the Apollo and passed by it on the way to my favorite soul food spot many times. The Apollo is a space that encompasses themes of performance, taking space, and even exclusion, all things that we have studied throughout this class. The Apollo has taken many faces throughout the decades, but most people know it as a black space. The Apollo is nationally identified as Harlem's hub of black entertainment. Some even call it Harlem's own Carnegie Hall. However, does the Apollo currently stand as a black space? How do the circumstances around a space, such as the neighborhood and the time period, affect the performance within a space? This will all be explored throughout this podcast. Okay, so let's go through a timeline of Harlem through the decades. It's 1913. The song of the year is When Irish Eyes Are Smiling by Chauncey Olcott. 
what we all understand as the Apollo starts out in 1913 as Hertig and Siemens' new burlesque theater owned and operated by Jules Hertig and Harry Seaman. The neighborhood was becoming increasingly black. However, many white people opposed the neighborhood's change, especially as Lenox Avenue became a color line. White owners made it their mission to not sell apartments or houses to black people. This was not only the neighborhood, but the time period that Hertig and Siemens' new burlesque theater was situated in, and so they enforced a strict whites-only policy. They featured all-white burlesque performers in front of an all-white audience, despite the neighborhood becoming increasingly blended. In 1933, Fiorella LaGuardia, who would later become New York City's mayor, began a campaign against burlesque. Hertig and Siemens was one of the many theaters that would close down. It's 1928 now, and the song of the year is Tea for Texas Blue Yodel Number no. 1 by Jimmy Rogers. Sidney Cohen and Morin Sussman reopened Hertig and Siemens' new burlesque theater as the 125th Street Apollo Theater. This Apollo is now situated within the largest black urban community. Starting around the time of the end of World War I, Harlem became associated with the New Negro Movement, and then the artistic outpouring known as the Harlem Renaissance, which extended to poetry, novels, theater, and the visual arts. Cohen and Seussman changed the format of the shows from burlesqued to variety and redirected their marketing attention to the growing African-American community in Harlem. The first black performance was Jazz à la carte. This is important to mention because for many years, the Apollo served as an exclusionary space. This is the first time that this space allowed Black people into it. Now Black performers, artists, and all the creatives of the Harlem Renaissance period can now be allowed to show their craft on stage. This Apollo was the beginning of it being a welcome space for Black performers. The 30s saw the first of five riots in Harlem. The incident started when a boy was supposedly caught stealing from a store on 125th Street and had been killed by the police. By the time it was over, 600 stores had been looted and three men were dead. However, the Apollo really hit its stride as a place of opportunity in this decade. Ella Fitzgerald, Pearl Bailey, Bessie Smith all make their debut here. It becomes a light spot in Harlem's community, especially in this turbulent decade. The subsequent decades after, the 40s, 50s, 60s, were the golden decades of the Apollo. Struggling Black artists who were not being taken seriously by white music executives due to racial discrimination got their start at the Apollo. They weren't allowed in mainstream establishments, 
So when they got on the Apollo stage, they weren't legends. So that's why I call it a place of opportunity. They became legends after they appeared on the Apollo stage, says Billy Mitchell, an Apollo historian. The Apollo became a place where talented black artists could walk in the door and come out superstars. James Brown, Johnny Mathis, Gladys Knight, Jimi Hendrix are just a few notable names. Now let's fast forward to 2020. The Apollo Theater is situated in the middle of a mixed neighborhood, which although is mostly black, is becoming increasingly white as white educators flock for employment at many of the neighborhood's charter schools. The neighborhood's mom and pop shops have been replaced by big franchises like Whole Foods, Chipotle, and Victoria's Secret. Acts like Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, and Metallica are headliners. The story of the Apollo showcases how important the external is to the internal. Factors such as time period and neighborhood demographic can heavily influence the performances within a space. The racial discrimination and unrest that was happening in Harlem in the golden decades of the Apollo shaped the meaning of the performances inside the space. Black artists and audience members who had never seen themselves represented on stage and in music depended on the Apollo. The Apollo is a place of refuge, of happiness, a shelter from the outside world. A shelter from classism, racism, and many of the other things that those who enter this space must have faced. Times have changed now, and although things are not better, they're perceived to be. The median salary of the neighborhood has risen. It's becoming a hotspot for investors and real estate agents alike. It's the digital age now, and so people can get famous off of streams and utilize platforms like Instagram and Facebook to make it big. All in all, it is clear that Black performers are no longer leaning on the Apollo to make it big in the industry. Although the Apollo is no longer a Black artist factory, it will always be a beacon, symbolizing how far Harlem and the Black artistry within it have come. Essex Street, Boston, Massachusetts. This address probably doesn't mean much to you. In fact, I'd be surprised if you told me it meant anything to you at all. If you were to walk down the street, it isn't a place that would immediately stand out from the rest of the buildings as a location worthy of notice. But the history of 21 Essex is much more fascinating and important than it seems at first glance. Now, it is nothing but a ghost space, with the echoes of the freedom performances it once hosted resonating through the stories of those who knew it best as the Playland Cafe. Boston's oldest gay bar. Located in Boston's combat zone, the Playland Cafe was a hotspot for Boston's gay community until it closed in 1998. It first opened in 1937 under the ownership of Rocco Staffier, but according to his son and successor in ownership, Paul Staffier, it did not become a gay bar fully until after World War II. Before this point, it operated in relative anonymity, 
without much attention paid to it by the authorities. By 1947, however, police began to report violations of liquor laws at the cafe. This increased interest on the part of the authorities once the Playland became a space for the gay community highlights a double standard that indicates the prejudice that existed against LGBTQ spaces and the people who inhabited them in this era. Likely due to this prejudice, the Playland was looked down upon by much of society. According to prints in the Boston Globe archive, in both 1955 and 1960, the United States military ruled the Playland Cafe off-limits to servicemen. Throughout its time in operation, the club also had a reputation for having a heightened connection to crime, but an article in the Boston Globe written about the club's closing describes that owner Paul Staffier, quote, denied that the club was a magnet for trouble and said arrests were a rarity in the 40 years he ran this so-called den of inequity, end quote. The idea of marginalized groups being seen as inherently more likely to engage in criminal activity and therefore facing more suspicion than others is one that is not confined to this story. It has a long and bloody history that carries through to today and is often used as a tool of oppression. Just look at the way the United States justice system inordinately penalizes Americans of color, or the way people argue that trans women should not be allowed to use female-gendered bathrooms as if they pose some kind of threat to cis women. In both of these examples, societal perception of issues ignores the harm being done to the person within the marginalized group and instead makes them out to be the villain, contributing to the structural violence that caused the harm in the first place. In the case of the Playland, the fact that it was looked down upon as being an extremely sketchy place despite the largely positive experiences there for those who actually went, highlights prejudice against the gay community on both an individual and structural level. The environment of the Playland itself provided a safe harbor from the bulk of this prejudice for the individuals who frequented it, and its memory lives on in each of them. Under one post on the Life on a Cocktail Napkin blog about the Playland, people in the comments reminisce about the times they spent there. One man even calls his time there the best time in his life. Interest in the Playland is not just confined to those who experienced it, though. In the same comment section, another student posted about a research paper he was writing on the Playland. Even though it no longer physically exists, the Playland continues to captivate, haunting the space it once took up and taking up space within the cultural consciousness, even if only on a small scale at the moment. This idea that history and the study of past freedom performances can provide a space for exploration of that freedom in itself is interesting, and it highlights the importance of spaces like the Playland that may no longer exist in a physical context. patrons have taken a more artistic route to expressing their feelings about the Playland. One of these former patrons is Michael Ander Brodeur, a musician and Washington Post music critic who created a weekend-long music experience named for the Playland. In an article with the Boston Globe, he was quoted as saying it was about, quote, the importance of physical space for queer communities, end quote. Having a space in which to perform one's authentic identity is extraordinarily powerful, and the Playland provided that for so many. The inclusive nature of the club was described best in a poem by the award-winning Mark Doty, entitled simply Playland and published in 1988 while the club was still open. Playland by Mark Doty. The black piano player's straightened hair gleams wet under a blue spot and he strikes up an arpeggio. And everyone up the long, steep stairs at the Playland Cafe sings, Pack up all my cares and woes. 
It is not a cafe, but a sort of sequin, buried in the smoked skin of a neighborhood of old leather and garment lofts, soot-stained facades, the lower floors spangled with peep shows and arcades, and the neon blinks above the black entry to the black and raspberry moiré room where the drag queen behind the piano and a cocktail gestures the lyrics, no one here can love or understand me, with one hand, as if reaching to gather in her audience. They can, certainly do, and she draws her hand back towards herself effortlessly, as if through long habit her hands no longer require even her attention. The black bar, the empty stage, with its tinsel curtains don't ever change, though the place is spangled for every holiday, probably nearly single-handedly keeping the crepe paper streamer industry alive. And tonight, it's decked for the 4th of July, Miss Liberty's birthday, and the jokes are sweet and inevitable. Who's carrying the torch? Who's under those skirts? Whose legs are spread in the harbor? The drunk who wants to bless and marry us makes the sign of the cross and rambles in Latin, and though it's silly, it makes me want to stay here all night. I've never seen anyone but us leave, and I believe that everyone here has been dead for years, and that they not only don't mind, but are truly happy, because here there is no need to guard themselves, no possibility of an aesthetic mistake, and no one is too old, too poor, or mistaken. When the queen walks by in her black pumps, she must have tried heels and given up, though somehow her walk still creates the impression of heels. She walks for all of us, aerial, haughty, not bothering to look to either side, intent on what she's made of herself and how and where she's going, which is only the bar, draped with bunting, but she might as well be walking to her own country, which is this one, undeniably dangerous and slated probably for demolition, but forgiving. Anyone's taken in, liberty's given to all comers here at the bottom, where no one wills to come. Oh, everyone does, but would you go home with anyone here? Besides, it's early yet. Forgiveness for her tired hair. Her own, for the black dress accentuating her wide shoulders, the same rhinestones, it doesn't matter. Another night of artifice is as exhausting as it is necessary. I hope she walks forever that the sign over the black door keeps pronouncing its credo, playland, that the piano player, his voice embalmed in gravel and honey, continues, yes, light the light, I'll be home late tonight, Blackbird, bye-bye. most within this portrayal of the playland is the sense of safety and comfort that is clearly being conveyed. Despite all of the fear that must have come along with frequenting a place that was targeted so often by the authorities and looked down upon by the wider public, people valued the emotional safety enough to keep coming back. The idea of there being no possibility of an aesthetic mistake implies a lack of judgment and a safe haven from the heaviness of the burden of that judgment in everyday life. The incredible positivity of this space is a protest in itself against the perception of negativity and danger that outsiders tried to press upon it. It stood as both a location for freedom performance and then, in many ways, as a freedom performance in itself, existing as a space apart from the broader accepted societal norms and its own display of freedom. The Playland Cafe 
is no longer the place it once was. Where it once stood, apartments have sprung up, filling the physical space left behind. But the space it holds in the history of Boston's LGBTQ community, and the space it fills in the memories of those who frequented it, isn't so easily brushed off. It is a ghost space, and like all the best ghosts, it will continue to haunt those left behind to tell its story for as long as there's a story to tell. I want you to close your eyes. Are they closed? Great. I want you to envision yourself in the place that brings you the most peace. Is it a pasture? Is it a beach? It can be absolutely anywhere in this world that you dream of. Now I want us to stop and breathe together. Let's take three deep breaths. Now I want you to visit yourself in a black box. You cannot see or feel the walls. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. It is simply you and your body existing in space. With your eyes closed, I want you to imagine your fingers and your hands, to feel the way your cheeks move and your breath tickles your nose, to sit within your own body. What are you thinking in this moment? How are you feeling? Are you thinking about what you have to do? Are you thinking nothing at all? Are you thinking about all the tasks you haven't done? Are you feeling at peace in this moment? Are you thinking, what is the literal purpose of all this? All of those are fair thoughts. You can open your eyes. I think that sometimes when we are given a lot of space, like a black box, whether physically or in our mind's eye, sometimes the pressure of the world or what we have to do floods in. I know for me personally, the pressures of the homework I have to do or errands that I have to do creep in. When I am in my happy place, I do not think about those things. But when you metaphorically pull the carpet from under my feet, and tell me to envision myself as simply avoid space, suddenly the external pressures come in. I think that very obviously that is because we live in a capitalist society that tells us that our worth is in direct correlation to our ability to produce and work. But for the purposes of this group project and the purposes of life, I want to talk about something a little different. 
I want to give us a framework in order to think and reframe our mindsets to pivot towards rest. I will be doing this from the perspective of NAP Ministries, a movement that is reclaiming the idea of protest by making the protest space themselves the most important place for resistance, the place where protest truly begins and returns. I'm really excited for you to join me on this journey. So here we go. served as the place where official documents were filed and stored in ancient Greece, the archive has been synonymous with governmental order, literally cementing the mandate for preservation and access, albeit restricted, of certain materials. Diana Taylor, a scholar of performance studies, describes the classification of historical account as either the archive or the repertoire. The archive refers to physical documents and material culture from which we can glean new information about the past. The repertoire describes the ways in which the body itself and active performances can share with us the intimate details we might miss. In her discussion of these concepts in her piece, The Archive and the Repertoire, Performing Cultural Memory in the Americas, Taylor states that repertoire is shifting our focus from written to embodied culture, from the discursive to the performative. When we think about protest, we often think about it within the context of the places in which they occur. We think about the streets and the buses. We think about the playing fields and the steps of a political building. We think about where people are sitting down or where they are standing up. These are places in which people are making a statement by doing something out of the ordinary within the context of a space that people can't help but notice. But according to this definition, what if physical place is actually also considered to be part of the archive? The archive is so incredibly valuable, but what I would like to offer is the idea that the embodied culture, the performative that we are referring to, is actually ourselves, that we are the repertoire. What if our kinesthetic memory as performance scholar Robin Bernstein describes, is simply the acknowledgement of our existence. Bernstein proposes that agency, intention, and racial subjectification co-emerge through everyday physical encounters with the material world. But what happens in the stillness? What if the place in which we confront our agency and intention is our beds? where the expectation for black bodies to participate in physical, emotional, and mental labor is challenged by rest. Resistance is anything that you can push back against that's trying to degrade your divinity. You don't get my help in oppressing me. (laughs) You know, like, why people... The oppressive world we live in is always something coming at us, but for us to participate in our own oppression, for us to participate in being like, yeah, um, I'm going to participate in this my demise mm-hmm. by not resting, by sleep, not sleeping, by grinding, by grinding ourselves into pure exhaustion, by mm-hmm. not taking care of our spiritual health, our physical health. Um, it's just something that I don't think that sits in the center of what black people are. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes against who, our true nature to participate in our own demise. <laughs> Trisha Hersey is the icon of this idea. 
Percy founded Knapp Ministries as a way to demonstrate that within a white supremacist capitalist society, the only true and consistent place there is for black women is within their own bodies. If their bodies are a temple, they must preserve them. Naville da Costa and Fanny Sosa, founders of Black Power Naps, agree. In an effort to combat quote-unquote grind culture, they host nap events, safe places for Black bodies to rest. The pandemic has obviously thrown a giant wrench in this. However, I feel that all the more this liminal space of time exemplifies the ways in which Black existence is resistance and Black rest is protest. As a perpetually exhausted black woman myself, pressured by Bowdoin College and all the weight that I carry in this world, simply by the nature of my existence as a black woman in predominantly white spaces, I have decided to follow Hersey, Acosta, and Sosa's teaching for one academic week and document my feelings before and after an intentional nap taking. To me, Rest is reclaiming the agency that Bernstein mentions by centering the place of protest within the self. Fighting against external and internalized pressure, it is the reprogramming of peace we give our subconscious that serves us well in the end, filling us with the tools we need to live and exist in the world. Time is 4.23. It is the first day of radical napping. I'm really nervous. (laughs) Um, But as I said before, I'm going to be doing check-ins of how I feel before and after this nap and forcing my body to rest even though it can be unnatural. So right now, I am feeling stressed. I actually didn't get a lot of sleep last night or the night before because of working on a lot of different things. It's finals period. And so I oddly feel awake, but we'll see. We'll see how I feel after. So here we go. Hey, the time is 8.46, and um, I didn't sleep that long, but I set a timer for one hour and went on my phone, and when I looked up, the timer went off, and so maybe this whole napping thing will be a little bit harder than I thought, um, and being intentional about it, because yeah, by the time I was supposed to start my nap, it was supposed to be done, and so... I had to carry on and continue my work, so I didn't get to rest today, but we'll try again tomorrow. Okay, it is Tuesday the 15th. It is 4.51 p.m. Um, I've had another really stressful day, but this time I'm actually going to nap, and I'm not going to stay on my phone. I'm going to put my phone right away and set my alarm. Um and be really intentional about the rest that I'm taking and 
leaving my work outside of the door, entering my bed, lights are off, and here we go. Okay, it is, what time is it? It is an hour after I went to sleep, and um, yeah, that was really bad. <laughs> I couldn't bring myself to rest because my mind was racing, because I was thinking about everything that I had to do, and you know, I thought that napping would be a little bit more easy, but it's looking like my body and my mind is more inclined to do other things, so we're just going to try again tomorrow. <laughs> Okay, it is Wednesday the 16th, and it is 2.30 p.m. Um, yeah, I am gonna try again. I'm gonna try to take a nap, um, turn off my devices, um, put my phone on airplane mode, and really just, like, take a nap and, and rest for at least, um, one hour, um, and so... I'm going to try again. We're going to do it this time. So, um, my uh, nap was cut short <laughs> uh, because I, um, what? Oh, sorry. My nap was cut short because I got a phone call and I have to attend a meeting. So, so much for that. But we'll try again tomorrow. Alright, at this point, I really just... <laughs> I want to get a good one and I want to get a good nap and I want it to to work. I, I, I don't want my body to not be able to rest. That's scary to me, especially in stressful times. Um... So it's Thursday the 17th, and um, because it snowed, it's been about two days of just constant snowplows. So that's been um, affecting my nighttime sleep, but that's okay. Um, yeah, so I'm going to try, and it's been a really stressful day, and I actually cried earlier today because it was just so incredibly stressful. And, um, yeah, so, uh, I really feel like I need this. And, yeah, I, I, I really, I really want to rest right now. I did it. <laughs> I did it. Um, yeah. I I feel good. I feel rested. I feel like I could go back to sleep, <laughs> which is um really good. And I feel f fresh. Um and I'm trying to actively stave off thoughts of all I have to do, but I feel good.
It is the last day. Crazy. It's like really crazy how time actually flew by. What? I can't believe it is Friday. But here we are. Friday the 18th. Last day of radical napping. First three days I feel like were a fail. So, and then yesterday was so good. So I just... You know, I, I want to continue because I really believe what Trissa Hershey is saying and and saying that when we rest, we are actively resisting all of these things, especially for black women, that is put on our bodies and that is expected from us to work. We were designed to work. We were designed to be. Our production doesn't really matter our production is in our worth um and so i i mean i've been thinking about these while i've been awake but it's easy to think about these things and then not put them into practice it's easy to think about these things and then go on and write my paper and and run my body into the ground you know so i'm gonna take a nap and i'm not gonna set a timer and I'm just going to nap for as long as my body would like. And in celebration of this uh, journey. And I realized that I have a lot to learn. And I had a lot to learn. And I have a lot to unlearn as well. Um, But I hope that I can continue to do that. So, here we go. experience of studying place, we have explored manifestations of freedom, whether it be through protest, place, or performance. Though perhaps these are all really the same thing, or pieces of a whole that we incorporate together and hold in conversation as we try to definitively craft freedom. What does protest sound like? What does place sound like? It can sound like freedom, or the struggle for freedom, whether it be, or, or, this concludes our exploration of place. Thanks for coming along with us.